Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Let's begin in prayer, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll start our program together. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Lord and Master of my life, deliver me from the spirit of slothfulness, meddling, ambition, and vain talk. Bestow upon me, your servant, the spirit of purity, humility, patience, and love. Yes, O Lord, King, grant that I may be aware of my own sins and not to judge my brother, for thou art blessed unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Doctor, it's all yours. You know, I really tried to figure out how we're going to, um, how we're going to, how we're going to end. And I thought the best way ultimately is going to be, um, I decided to follow more uh, Benedict XVI's, um, his second volume, I think that's showing, the Jesus of Nazareth. So I just want to pick up a couple of points that he made up out of this and, and weave a lot of this together in terms of bringing to a close. I think really, I just want to get us through chapter 17 because chapter 17 will sum up for us all that Jesus is doing. And so we'll finish this uh, watching how Jesus is establishing the temple, how he's establishing the sacrifice, how he's replaced table for table. When he overthrew at the first Pentecost, he threw over the tables of the money changers and, and the tables of the temple and Rabbi Nusner says that he was going to replace table with table. And we see at the next Pentecost that Jesus is taking the, uh, the table of his body and blood, replacing the table, the tables that he overthrew at the first Pentecost with the second Pentecost when Jesus institutes his body and blood, showing that he's replacing the whole offering from the uh, discussions in Exodus chapter 29, verse 38. And then... Uh, we move to the third Pentecost, and Jesus was speaking of his death and why he must die. And so I want to look at Jesus' prayer and his offering that ultimately concluding in John chapter 17, that this discussion of establishing God's name is really that through his death, the establishment of God's name is the establishment of his resurrected body. That his resurrected body is the establishing of God's name. In other words, the permanent temple of God's dwelling amongst men for the name upon which all men can now call that Jesus Christ, they call on Jesus Christ as Lord, so that at Jesus' name, every knee must bend and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And why Jesus' name has power, because Jesus is God with us and God amongst us. And that's why Jesus says, you've not yet asked anything in my name, but ask in my name and I will do it. And so this closeness of God with us in covenant. So that's really want to get into, I think, with chapter 17, because it'll show us the very meaning of the Passover, the very meaning of Jesus' passion. And so I thought really the best way to begin to enter into it is I really want to take a focus. I really wanted to move from all that we've been saying into what does Jesus mean that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin? And that's in chapter 16. So what I'm really after 
is to connect a couple themes of John chapter 8 about sin, about truth, and sin. Because we see these picked back up in John chapter 16 about the Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin and the Holy Spirit leading us into all truth. So I want to go back to something we talked about a little bit. I want to go back to the Jews responding to Jesus that they've never been slaves. And Jesus bringing up the mystery of sin that he's come to resolve. And to do that, I wanted to go into a brief reading. So certainly one of the professors of one of the professors of, of Benedict XVI as Joseph Ratzinger, one of the professors was Romano Guardini. And so the book I'm holding up here is a translation. If any of you are really good in German, I got to tell you, someone really needs to do another translation, that there are so many translation errors inside of this uh, that really throw people for a loop. If you ever get the time, get the original Guardini in the German and give us a really good English translation. Um, why don't we go ahead? I want to pray to the Holy Spirit, uh, specifically for this entering into the study of sacred scripture. And so that prayer that we've always opened up with, if, if you would join me, and we'll, we'll pray it twice. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, come by means of the powerful intercession of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, your well-beloved spouse. Come Holy Spirit, come by means of the powerful intercession of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, your well-beloved spouse. Open the scriptures for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And what I wanted to read is three paragraphs out of Guardini to, to get us thinking about Jesus' discussion of being a slave to sin and the seriousness of sin. And so this is about, this is the chapter in Romano Guardini that's entitled Gethsemane. And so it's about Jesus' agony in the garden. And he says, a terrible sadness overcomes the Lord, sadness unto death says Holy Scripture. And Jesus tells also the three to wait. Perhaps they're surprised to hear him say that, sh that they should watch with him. It is probably the first time he has ever asked them to. Alone, he advances a few paces, falls on his face, and prays. This is no place for psychology. When guided by reverence and warmed by generosity, Psychology is an excellent thing, doing much to help one human understand another. Here, though, it must fail, for it could only say that this was another instance of natural reaction. After the tension of tremendous religious concentration and the climb to dizzying spiritual heights of surrender, love, and revelation, the collapse, the depression. We have only to recall the life of the prophets to see what is meant— Psychology would explain Gethsemane similarly. The rejection by both the ruling class and the masses. The pilgrimage to Jerusalem with its tremendous experiences, the entry into the city, the terrible waiting of the preceding days, the treachery in the Last Supper. As a result of the prolonged strain, now the breakdown. In the case of any human fighting under duress for a noble cause, the analysis very likely would be correct. Also, at least partly, for a prophet. But with Jesus, any such explanation is bound to founder. If it is insisted upon, Holy Thursday is robbed of that weight and salutary power 
which can be sensed only in contrition and adoration. Here we can proceed solely through faith guided by revelation, and it must be living faith, no mere passive acceptance of facts. We participate in this mystery only when we realize and admit that its content is our sin. Mankind's sin constantly being relived in our own deeds and omissions today and yesterday and always, in all our daily rebellion and lassitude, interestedness and sharpness, in the indescribable evil deep at the root of our whole attitude towards existence. We understand here as much as we understand that in the agony of Gethsemane, the ultimate consequences of our sin had their hour. Not before we have surrendered ourselves to the dreadfulness of that hour will we understand really what sin is. In the measure that we comprehend sin, we comprehend Christ. And we comprehend our own sin only in the measure that we experience what he experienced when he sweated blood in the night. And I open with that to bring us back to how much self-knowledge of our own sinfulness do we really have? How much do we realize how alienated from God we truly are? And I think we see this witness to this hardness of heart that we can all fall into and which we fail to grasp that it is our sins and Jesus associating himself in his flesh with our sinful flesh. Jesus' agony in the garden is the knowledge that he's going to march that flesh all the way into death so he can put to death the old man and rise as that last Adam as the true temple. He is taking the temple of his body and letting it be destroyed that in three days he may rebuild it for what is the true temple that God ordained according to the letter to the Ephesians, before the foundation of the world. And that's why we've been studying John's gospel in terms of Jesus as the creation of the true temple of God, that for which God brought the whole world into existence in the first place, is that it might exist ultimately to be drawn from to construct the ultimate temple which the ultimate Adam is going to establish through the sacrifice of his body and blood to construct the new and everlasting temple that can never be destroyed so that all of us alienated from the household of God can be brought back into the household of God. And so in John chapter 8, if you'll open to it, John chapter 8, and we had touched on some of this before, but I want to bring you back to it. John chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus then said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are descendants of Abraham and have never been in bondage to anyone. How is it that you say, you will be made free. 
And what's interesting here is you have the temple elites, the Jerusalem elites, and their response is so out of touch with reality, it's almost laughable. You should almost be laughing when you read this. Are they serious? We have never been in bondage to anyone. What about the 400 years in Egypt? What about the fact that after you were delivered from Egypt, you immediately broke the covenant to which the prophets refer, and the prophets say, Jeremiah 31, 31. Um, and that day I'll make a new covenant. Like the covenant I made with you in the wilderness, the covenant which you broke, and I had to play the master, which means you're the slave. Now, not only that, but after your repeated sins, we destroyed that Temple of Solomon and sent you into bondage for at least 70 years in Babylon. And then when the Greeks overrode you and took over the temple and stuck in all their pagan shrines, were you free then or were you in bondage? And now the Romans have overtaken the whole place and you're about to say we have no king but Caesar in order to get Jesus killed. Now, how can you with a straight face say, we've never been in bondage? And Jesus brings up the point and he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. How could they have believed that the temple rituals that they were doing, which were clearly the rituals established because of their 10 rebellions during the 40 years in the wilderness, constantly being corrected and law upon law upon law being added to keep them out of God's house. And so Jesus says, the slave does not continue in the house forever. The son continues forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So what has Jesus come to give us? Freedom, but it's a freedom that stems from a knowledge of the truth, who God is and who you are, and your state of alienation because your lack of true worship, of truly surrendering and loving God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all your strength, and all of your soul. Do you really believe the rituals that you're doing? sacrificing bulls, goats, sheep, turtle doves. Do you really think that's true religion and living in the truth? Or is that rather a placeholder that God put upon you because you rebelled at the golden calf? And so he stripped the sonship and the priesthood from you and said, no one but the Levites can enter my house. And in fact, not even the Levites can enter my house, only some of them into the Holy of Holies. And in fact, only one of them, I'm sorry, only some of them into the holy place, and only one of them, the high priest, could enter the holy of holies. I hope you can see where I'm going, because Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 explains how he's going into the holy of holies in order to open it up for all of us to be made sons in the Son and have access through him, the true high priest, by sharing in his sonship, we are made priests in Christ, able to go into the Holy of Holies, but not the, not the Levitical priesthood. 
but sharing in Jesus' high priesthood as son of God, his priesthood of Melchizedek, through the baptismal character we have, not the ministerial priesthood received in holy orders. Maybe saying a lot, maybe we'll have to open that up in the question and answer section. But he's being very clear, you just said you've never been slaves, and yet you're not allowed in God's household, is the message. And what's so funny is John chapter 8 seems to be totally explained by St. Paul in Galatians chapter 3. Flip to it. John chapter 8, Galatians chapter 3. So Galatians chapter 3, it says, verse 23, now before faith came, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint. Does confined and restraint sound like freedom? Here's the greatest rabbi of the Jews, Paul, trained. Why the greatest rabbi? Because he was the greatest disciple of the greatest rabbi ever, Gamaliel. And he's interpreting the law for us. And he's saying, we were slaves. Verse 24, so that the law was our custodian until Christ came. So what was the law? What were the books of, of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? The law, what were they? The word here in the Greek is pedagogue. And a pedagogue is a slave you put over your children until you give them enough practices that they develop in virtue and are ready for true teaching. Which means if you put a slave over your kids, your kids are no better than a slave. And so it says, the law was our custodian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So what is Jesus saying here? He says, in, stay here in Galatians, but look back at John chapter 8. I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Well, they broke all Ten Commandments of the Golden Calf. They're slaves of sin. And so they're living under a liturgy that's reminding them to stop breaking the Ten Commandments. The slave does not continue in the house forever. The son continues forever. So if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. What is the son offering us to bring us into freedom? Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ is life. Faith in Jesus Christ brings Christ into you and a share in his relationship with the Father. And so you see this whole movement in Galatians chapter 3, the Son, Jesus Christ, brings us from slavery into sonship. And this is what Jesus is promising. Again, look in chapter 4 of Galatians. I mean, chapter 4, Verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no better than a slave, though he is, he is the owner of the estate. He's under guardians. Verse 3, he begins to talk about this is Israel's history, and Jesus is telling them their true history right here in John chapter 8. And the real meaning is this. You are outside of the temple. I'm going to bring you inside the temple, and the way I'm going to bring you inside the temple is I'm going to make myself the sacrifice. And I'm going to make myself the temple by taking all of those Jewish rituals that don't give you life, but are only foreshadowings of the atonement that's to come. I'm going to take all their meanings into myself. I'm going to replace that temple made by hands with a temple not made by human hands. And I'm going to stow my spirit upon you, 
who will lead you into all truth so that you can enter my sacrifice, which is the sacrifice of the obedience of faith, acts of faith, hope, and charity, so that you, through the sacraments I establish, will be made sons and have access to the Holy of Holies. Because right now, none of you can enter the Holy of Holies. None of you. In other words, all human flesh has been kicked out of the household of God. In fact, Jesus' agony in the garden is the revelation of feeling the weight of our human flesh. Why? Because Jesus has not yet communicated the glory of his human spiritual soul, the glory that he revealed at the transfiguration. He has not yet permanently communicated it to his human flesh. So what is he experiencing in the garden? His union with all human flesh and its sinfulness. His union with me, sinful Matthew Sakonikis. His sinful with you, if you have the self-knowledge and that you believe in Jesus Christ and you're no longer afraid to admit the truth about you, that truth we always have to hide because if anyone finds out I, I'm sinful, they'll know I'm not perfect and I'll have to, I don't know how I'm going to hold up my public facade that I'm a perfect person. And so Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to die for sin. Jesus came to bring what was sinful flesh to sanctify it so that it could again live in surrender to the Father who loves us. And by that surrender, the Father wants to fill us with his spirit and raise us up to be even more than we've ever been. But how can we do that if we won't admit our sin? How will he heal us if we won't admit our sin and that we're in the cruel slavery to the devil from which he's come to deliver us. And so this is why Jesus is talking about slavery and why he's going to give the Holy Spirit and why he's talking about truth. Jesus' agony in the garden, in his flesh, he had become sin. What does that mean? It means he had not yet let the glory in his spiritual soul be communicated through his flesh. And so his flesh was still outside of the Holy of Holies. So what's he going to do? He's going to bring his own flesh and blood as sacrifice, which means he is going to so totally give himself to the Father in his human condition that necessarily he's going to have to give himself to the point of death because you can't give any more. So he's going to bring all sinful flesh into absolute surrender to the will of the Father. And then in resurrecting from the dead, the glory of his human spiritual soul, which is in his divinity, the glory will be communicated to his flesh. And Jesus is going to become for us the house of God. And he's going to admit us into the house of God by giving us his life-giving flesh and his life-giving blood, that when we pass through that veil, instead of a curtain in a temple and passing through his body and blood, we're standing in the Holy of Holies. We have a home again. We're no longer slaves alienated from the household. We're members of the household. All of this imagery 
is what he's he's showing to us. This whole glory of God is already mentioned to us in Romans. Take a look at it. Romans chapter 3. What's this slavery that Jesus had to remind him? You're a slave to sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No human flesh was allowed in the temple. All fall short of the glory of God. What happens when you enter the Holy of Holies? You're filled with glory. When Moses entered the Holy of Holies on Mount Sinai in chapter 34, he came out radiant, radiating the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. Look at the answer in chapter 5 of the movement from slavery to sin into sons of God. Romans chapter 5, verse, verse 1. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And so Jesus is going, has taken our sin upon his flesh, and he wants to bring us into the temple. In other words, all that we're seeing happening relates to Isaiah 53. And that's why Jesus is going to pray this high priestly prayer of John 17. But before we get to that, let's take a quick peek at John chapter 16. Notice John chapter 8 began with, if you continue on my words, you'll be disciples, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And then he talked about, what do you mean you're not slaves? You're, you're slaves to sin, and you need to be healed of your sin. I'll reread for you that reminder of what we had looked at in Isaiah chapter 63, where they say, you can see where in chapter 63, verse 17, O Lord, why do you make us err from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? I mean, all of chapter 8 of John is about, look how hard their heart is. We've never been in bondage to anyone. I mean, talk about a lack of self-knowledge because you're living high at the time. But doesn't that describe all of us? When everything's going good, we're Mr. and Mrs. Self-Sufficient, Mr. and Mrs. Autonomous, and we've forgotten the face of our fathers. We've forgotten all the people who made it possible for us to get to where we are. We've forgotten the most important father. If he weren't holding us in existence right now, we would fall back into the nothingness from which we come. And that's why God said to St. Catherine of Siena in the dialogue, he said, do you want to abide in self-knowledge? Do you want to abide in true humility and self-knowledge? Then remember this. I am he who is, and you are she who is not. If you will abide in that knowledge, you will abide in humility, and you will progress in holiness, because that's the truth about you and me, the truth about God and the truth about man. And the truth is we're forgetful. But notice how forgetful they are that they forget that Isaiah prophesied that when the Messiah comes, he comes to free us from sin. Chapter 63 uh, moves into chapter 64, verse 5. 
Now, in between, they've been calling, bring your temple back, bring your temple back. And Jesus is saying, I mean, take a look. Chapter 63, verse 18, your holy people possessed your sanctuary a little while, and our adversaries have trodden it down. Chapter 64, verse 1, that you would tear down the heavens and come down, that the mounds might quake in your presence. In other words, join heaven and earth again. And Jesus is saying in John chapter 8, I am the joining of heaven and earth. He's already made clear in chapter 2 when he overthrew the tables, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. And if you haven't figured out who I am, remember in John chapter 5, the fathers at work till now, and I'm at work. And it says they picked up stones to stone him, because he not only made God his father, but made himself equal to God. He's already made plenty of signs of his power, his claim, his miracles, and they're not hearing what he's saying to him, and he's reminding them of Isaiah 63, I've come to deliver you from your sins, I'm the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, but in Isaiah 63, let me remind you of your own words in 700 BC, this is probably closer to 690 BC when Isaiah is writing this, verse 5, halfway through, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We're not offering right sacrifice. We all fade like a leaf. Verse 7, there is no one that calls upon your name. We're going to find in chapter 17, to call upon the Lord's name and for the Lord to have established his name to be called upon is for the Lord to establish his sanctuary in the midst of the people. Jesus is the sanctuary in the midst of the people. And so it's this recognition of sinfulness that's necessary for people to enter into the truth. Not because God wants to hold us down in our sins, but the only way he can heal us is if we will admit the sin. And the only way you'll admit the sin is if you believe in God's love for you. If you believe he loves you, you finally find the freedom to say, I've been living a lie. I confess. I, I hide all my secret sins because I want people to think I'm really wonderful. I am a whitewashed sepulcher full of dead man bones on the inside. I do all my religion for people to see. But inside, I'm ravenous. And I want you to make me whole, Jesus. I suffer all the deadly sins, pride, anger, lust, envy, gluttony, avarice, sloth. That's pale gas. If you can't remember the acronym, I just went through pale gas. Pride, anger, lust, envy, gluttony. That's pale gas. That's what, how I moved through the seven deadly sins. And we're able to remember, and others are no longer afraid to admit, I am, I do have a mean streak within me. I am nasty to others. I am self-centered. Jesus, I'm not love. I'm not patient and kind. I am boastful. Everything in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'm not. And I want to be it. Free me from my sins. You came to save sinners. I'm not going to slap your hand away and say I've never been in bondage to anyone. I'm going to grab your hand. I'm going to wrap both my hands around it and my feet and not let you go. Save this sinner. John 16. Why must he die to make it so that we can be sanctified in the truth? and enter God's house, having been made pure by his sacrifice, his sacrifice that causes faith. 
in the resurrected Lord who overcame death, the Lord we can trust. And so in John 16, verse uh, four and a half, the work of the Spirit, I, he says to them now, he's still at the Last Supper. He's instituting his body and blood. He's talking with them about the meaning of all that he's doing. And he says, he's talking about his death. I mean, how can he not be talking about his death, right? He took bread and said, this is my body. He took wine and said, this is my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant to be shed for you, for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. I'm making myself a sacrifice. I'm entering into Isaiah 53, is what he's saying to them. It's a, Everything you've read in Isaiah 53, as soon as we go out into the garden, is about to begin. I'm offering you under signs that become the realities, sacraments, and I'm about to do all that it takes to give power now to the new rituals of my temple. I'm going to offer the one-time sacrifice that gives power to this sacrifice of the Mass. I'm going to actually let my body and blood be separated now. And so he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning. This is verse 4 of chapter 16. Because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Well, they already have caught on. He's going to his death. That's why he's about to talk about you're going to be sad, but you will rejoice as we read the rest of chapter 16. Verse 6, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Sin because they do not believe in me. Righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. In other words, all men will know. In my crucifixion, the sign that I've raised up to draw all men to myself, they will hear of my resurrection. They will know of the empty tomb. They will know of the repeated confirmations that I overcame death and the tomb. And they will be convicted of sin, that there is life, and that God so loved the world. God loves you before you love him, even in your sins. God still loves you. You don't have to become perfect before God loves you. It's impossible. God's love for you is what helps you overcome your sin. Accepting God's love for you is how you overcome sin. You don't first do it by your power, and then God will love you. That's total heresy. It's called Pelagianism. And that means by your efforts before God and apart from God, you make yourself just. Those are human works that stink. They're dirty rags before God. You have no power to give yourself eternal life. This is the Catholic teaching on grace. This is why St. Thomas Aquinas, in his teaching on the new law, says, the grace of the Holy Spirit is the new law. The grace poured into our hearts received through faith. In other words, the faith the Holy Spirit gives you. Received through faith and working in charity. It is a gift freely given by God. 
And so Jesus is going to set up that sign, and the truth is going to be known he's overcome death. And all the miracles being worked in his name will, will teach us God is love. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that all who believe in him may not perish, but may receive eternal life. Why? Because in believing in him, they confess their sins. They're, they find the freedom of, you mean I can be healed and forgiven? I just have to admit the truth about myself. Yeah, that's it. Admit what everyone already knows, we're all dirty, rotten scoundrels. And the only goodness about us is our love and following of Jesus that elevates us from creatures to sons of God. And so Jesus says, verse 12, I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. What truth? The truth that makes you free. The truth that frees you from sin and enables you to receive the Spirit and enter the Sonship of God. To become sons in the Son. How? Through entering His sacrifice, made available to you in the sacred liturgy of the temple He established. The sacred liturgy that establishes right here in chapter 16, and in chapter 17, he is establishing the liturgy of his body and blood for you to be joined to its offering, for him to join himself to you in his one-time offering, and enable you to renew your pledge to live for God through him, with him, and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, because you've been made sons, the sacramental character that you bear, bear in baptism— and in confirmation, you've been made sons, and he's applying that sonship to you by your entering into your total self-giving and living fully for the Father, just as Jesus in his humanity lives fully for the Father. And so this leads us into trying to comprehend why Jesus is establishing his body and blood and talking about sin and freeing us from sin and bringing us into the Son. Read Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, we'll start in verse 2. The suffering servant. Read it through what Jesus is teaching them through his body and blood at the Last Supper. Again, verse 2, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. The Sanhedrin. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, think of the scourging and the crucifixion, despised, we esteemed him not. We didn't grasp what he was doing at the time. Surely he has borne our griefs. Notice one man is taking upon himself the grief and sins of a nation. Carried our sorrows, his association of his flesh in the in Gethsemane with our flesh, and which he saw himself united with all of us, and through his infused knowledge, he saw the sins of all of us for which he was atoning in the agony of the garden by infused knowledge. And so he saw himself as sin, even though he never committed sin, associated with all of us outside of the temple, outside of the Holy of Holies, which was never God's will. 
He was wounded for our transgressions, our sins, bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and with his stripes we are healed. So notice how he's taking one man is embodying and mediating on behalf of an entire people. What's that make him? A priest. He's not being called it because it's not a Levitical priesthood, but he's clearly acting as a priest mediating for the forgiveness of sins, somehow taking it upon himself. He's acting as a priest, clothed in our sins, the dirty garments of Zechariah, priestly garments of Zechariah, that have to be changed. And through the death, the shedding of those rags and resurrecting to the glorified body to operate his high priesthood from heaven. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord. So we, we read obviously in verse nine that he'll be put to death, cut off from the living in verse eight, buried in a rich man's tomb in verse nine, Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to bruise him he has put him to grief when he makes himself an offering for when he makes himself an offering for sin. Notice Jesus is picking up Isaiah. He is making himself. This is my body. This is my blood of the new and everlasting covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. I've become the sin offering. I've become the daily whole offering of the lamb which you offer bread and wine with, I've become it. But now he's actually saying, I've become the suffering servant of, of Isaiah 53, and I'm becoming your mediating priest, a new priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek. I'm restoring the great priesthood of Melchizedek. So what's funny is this. Remember what Caiaphas said in chapter 11 about Jesus. The high priest in chapter 11 of John's gospel says, John chapter 11, Caiaphas was the high priest, and he says, verse 50, you do not understand that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Yeah, Isaiah 53, one man is dying for the whole people. Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. In other words, he's actually handed over his high priesthood to Jesus because Jesus is doing for the people what that high priest can't. And that explains now Jesus entering into this high priestly prayer of John 17. He not only has taken the daily offering into himself, he not only has become the Passover lamb, he not only has said at the Feast of Tabernacles, come to me and drink, showing the life-giving waters of the temple. He's not only said, I'm the light of the world during the festival of the pillar of fire. He's taken all those festivals into himself except one. Which one? The day of atonement. And now as high priest, named by the high priest to do what only the high priest should do, he is becoming the Day of Atonement. Look real quickly, if you would, take a look at uh, Leviticus chapter 16, what the high priest is supposed to do. Again, I'm borrowing a lot of this from this book here, Pope Benedict's uh, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, Holy Week. So it's the second volume. 
So I'm just synthesizing a lot of what I've been saying and then borrowing now from what, what others have taught and Benedict XVI, borrowing from Fuyer, I think is the name, in this commentary on what Jesus is doing. And so if you take a look in Leviticus chapter 16, we're told what the Day of Atonement, what the high priest must do. And so Aaron, once a year, he's supposed to take a bull and two goats, offer the bull in sacrifice, one of the goats in sacrifice, and then lay the sins of the people on the other goat, who becomes, so Jesus, in a sense, is becoming, as a suffering servant, he's becoming a scapegoat, taking the sins of the people upon himself. He's mediating between God and men. He's made himself an offering for sin. And now we see what's supposed to happen on the Day of Atonement. The high priest is supposed to offer sacrifice and prayers for himself. Chapter 16 of Leviticus, verse 11. The Lord tells Moses, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. So who's he supposed to be offering the sacrifice and these prayers for? The high priest for himself and for his household, which is the household of Aaron, the high priest, and all Levites, the house of Levi. Who is Jesus? The true high priest. And what's he going to do? He's offering a prayer for his own mission about what he's about to do. We're going to see that in John 17. And then he prays for the apostles who in his person will continue from his sacrifice the sanctification of the people, which therefore makes them priests. That's why he just washed them with the ritual, ritual washing, which is usually done to priests serving in the tent temple. He washes them in John chapter 13 and says, what I do now, you will understand later. So it has two meanings. They're being washed to receive the body and blood and to being told and ordained to do this and give it to the people. They're priests in the one high priest, Jesus Christ, not separate from him. And then the last thing the high priest is supposed to do, take a look at verse 15. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 15. He shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. So notice, you offer for the, the high priest offers for himself, for the priests, and for the nation. And it's very clear uh, verse 17, the very ending of it says, he makes atonement for himself, for his house, and for the assembly. The word assembly is, is for us, ecclesia, the church. Take a look at verse 30. For on this day, what is this day? Verse 30, shall atonement be made for you. What? To reconcile heaven and earth. The day of atonement for the year. To cleanse you from all your sins, you shall be clean before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. You ever wonder why we have to fast on Good Friday? Because we're fasting just like everyone fasts on the Day of Atonement. Verse 34, and this shall be an everlasting statute for you, that atonement may be made for all the sons of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. Jesus is showing himself to be making the Day of Atonement as the suffering servant, having offered his body and blood, he now prays for, take a look, John 17, 
Jesus had spoken these words, verse 1, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said. So here's the prayer. He's explaining now the sacrifice of his body and blood. And he's offering himself. He's offering himself in this prayer as high priest and victim. The hour has come, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. In other words, accept my sacrifice. I'm going to my death, just like I've been talking about now for chapters 14 to 16. Actually, chapter 12 through 16 has all about been going to my death. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him power over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Well, what's the work? To build the temple. He's the son of David. Matthew's gospel begins and says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So they're telling us his mission. The son of David has to build God's house. The son of Abraham has to finish the sacrifice. So we already know the work that John's explaining now through John chapter 1, verse 14. God came down from heaven again. He joins himself to earth, flesh, taking flesh of the virgin. And therefore, he has established the new tent of meeting, his flesh being the visible sign, the outward visible sign, what's on the inside, the fullness of divinity, the holy of holies. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory which I had with you before the world was made. Well, why doesn't he have the glory now? He had glory, but when he took flesh, he wouldn't let the glory be communicated to his flesh because he's got to bring it to death. And he's saying, through my death, Raise me back up in the glory that I had with you. Reveal my glory. He has prayed for himself as high priest, offering himself as the sacrifice. Who's he pray for next? The apostles that will offer the sacrifice of his body and blood, replacing all the Old Testament rituals with himself, the true temple, the true purpose of the whole world, the temple of God, so that you and I may dwell as sons of God in it. No longer merely slaves, creatures, but sons of God, born again from above. And so he says, I've manifested your name. Verse 6, I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. This is where he's praying for them. But he's talking about establishing the temple. You see again in verse 26, chapter 17. He's talking about the temple of his body being established as God's name. Take a look at verse 26 of chapter 17. I made known to them your name. That's definitely the transfiguration, that this is the only begotten Son of God who reveals the Father. I'll explain that more in the questions. I made known to them your name, just like he said in verse 6, I have manifested your name. I will make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. Where do I get that to manifest your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world is saying, I'm giving them your dwelling with them again. Because all of chapter 16 is all about 
John 14 and 16 is I and you and you and me. Look at John 17. He discusses again this dwelling of God with man. And he'll say, verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me. This constantly, you and me, and I and them. What does he mean, I have manifested your name to them? You have to look at Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 11. What this means to make known God's name, the whole point of the Torah, all the way until King David, is the establishment of the temple in Jerusalem. God comes down on Mount Sinai showing his temple, a natural temple where heaven and earth are joined. Then they follow those boundaries set up by the cloud and the barrier around the mountain, and they construct a tent based on that model, and the glory cloud comes down and fills it, and the glory of the Lord is revealed. And then they carry that tent all around for 40 years till they enter the promised land, and for 400 years driving the people off the land till David clears Jerusalem and says, now I'm going to build the Lord's house. This is what's being talked about right here. Start at verse 10. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God gives you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you live in safety— then to the place which the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. In other words, God's dwelling presence among men. That is how God's name is revealed. Well, Jesus is the one constantly revealing God's dwelling among men. Jesus, who are you? Well, the Father's at work until now, and I'm at work. You, a man, make yourself God. Who are you? I'm from above. You're from below. Abraham longed to see my day, John chapter 8. You're not 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Amen, amen, I say to you. Before Abraham was, I am. The name of God. I'm God dwelling in your midst. All that Isaiah 63, come down from heaven and establish your temple again. It's here. You now can call on my name, the holy name of Jesus, because I'm God. And that's why St. Paul will quote Philippians chapter 2 as he moves through verses 9 through 11 and say that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, Jesus' incarnation, death, and resurrection reestablishes God's name on earth. God with us, Jesus Christ, living and reigning from heaven, who lays down his life to build the true temple so we're no longer slaves but sons because we're given access into the Holy of Holies. Jesus is the Holy of Holies. And so he prays lastly, verse 20, as the high priest... Remember, the high priest on the Day of Atonement prays for the high priest, for the priests, and for the, the gathering of the assembly. So in verse 20 of chapter 17 of John, I do not pray for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. In other words, he's explaining now that through this 
bread and wine that he's made his body and blood. You're going to draw all men into me. And through this liturgy that I've established, the liturgy I'm active in, my glorified body from heaven, the name of the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, reigns among men for 2,000 years. The Messiah has been reigning, but not in an earthly kingdom, not a kingdom of this world. And as soon as he leaves from this high priestly prayer, verse 18, you see the whole meaning of the suffering servant come into play to the very offering on the cross. Okay, that's, I think that's John's gospel in five meetings. So we'll pick up from here. I hope Father Father Canazzo is probably thinking, well, Sacanese is going to be rambling another 10, 15 minutes, or are they leaving that for you to go ahead and pick up? We'll go into housekeeping and questions. Yes, yeah, we will. Dr. Zakonikas, thank you so much. So, Dr. Zakonikas, let's get to some questions here. Um, Christina writes, what did Jesus mean when he said that he was the truth? Wow, that's a hard one to answer, actually, in terms of there's so much to say. And so how do I how do I succinctly answer that? That in conforming yourself to him, he is ultimate reality. He is ultimate being and life and eternity. And that only by knowing him can we find the fullness of what it is we're really seeking for the ultimate answer. Because what does intelligence seek? Intelligence seeks truth. And so ultimately, all that our intelligence has been leading us to is a search for the ultimate answer. And, and the ultimate foundation of all reality is God himself and Jesus being the logos, the pattern upon which all things were created, the, the person through which all things were created, without him was not anything made that was made, that Jesus is the ultimate realization of ourselves, even though we remain a distinct person. I'm, I'm sorry I can't be more revelatorily in terms of answering it with a better question straight out of the scripture. But um, I'd be happy if someone else wanted to hop in and chime in and say, well, that's easy, Dr. Sagan. Of course, he's the truth. But I mean that he is, he is ultimately what we rest in in terms of all the, he's our real rest. He's our Sabbath. He is the Sabbath of Sabbaths. He is, he is that, true, that true life for which we all long to abide within. I think that was beautifully put. Um, Bill asks, could you please expand on the relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene, specifically when he tells her not to hold on to him? I think there's so much that can be said here, but Mary might not have understood all the spiritual realities at that time. And so certainly there's an aspect yet of He's recognizing her great effective love for him, that Jesus is her all. And so she loves him at every level of her being, spiritually, intelligently, emotionally, humanly. And Jesus is saying, I'm not to be kept in this way. I, I belong fully to the Father, and the relationship you're going to have with me is the spiritual relationship of the, of the groom who is the groom to all, that the entire church is his bride. So I think there's a lot of that there. 
Um, I'm sorry off the top of my head. I, I'm certain there's all sorts of other rabbinical meetings that are occurring here, but uh, he's not yet ascended to the Father, and so he's not to be held on to into a humanly way and thought of only in a human way. And that's why he has to ascend. We think too much of him because we can see him and touch him and relate to him so easily, we forget he's God. He's not just a man. And that's why in the ascension, taking on this invisible role of no longer visible, so subject to the spirit that our eyes can no longer see him. And now it's through the activity of the spirit that we know him. He's still fully human in heaven, but because he is in a glorified body, he has tra transcended time and he's transcended length with height and space. So he's not visible to us. And so that relationship is the necessary one of the development of the church. And so Mary's going to have to begin to learn this proper relationship to have with him. Um, another participant asks, uh, John 17, 20 and following, besides becoming high priest, the sacrifice, the scapegoat, etc., isn't he also becoming the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, the blessing to the nations? Absolutely. So, of course, that's always very interesting to draw. So we should bring up, as Matthew's gospel points out, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we know there was an initial fulfillment of the temple. The temple of Solomon was a, was a down payment that there really is going to be a temple associated with the king always. And this relationship of king and temple. But that temple was destroyed and Solomon, the first son of the first son of David, falls into apostasy. So clearly he didn't fulfill all of God's plan, which goes for future generations. Jesus is the one who builds a temple that can never be destroyed. Jesus never apostatizes. Jesus brings us to the perfect obedience of the flesh, of a constant. Jesus, as, as Corinthians speaks of him, Jesus is the yes to the Father. He always says yes to the will of the Father, because the will of the Father is only good for us. So um, he is the true temple. Now, the, the sacrifice, you'll notice, the only sacrifice that with Abraham that didn't go through, there were the three promises— and then there were three sacrifices associated with the three promises of the land, the name, and the worldwide blessing. Well, clearly the worldwide blessing was put on hold because Isaac never had to go through with the sacrifice. And God was clear that he himself will provide the sacrifice. So you do see correctly that Jesus Christ's sacrifice fulfills the sacrifice of the beloved son of the father. And so Jesus is allowed to go through the sacrifice. He explains it to us in John. I lay my life down freely because I have the power to take it up again. And that's why he's allowed to let someone kill him. Number one, he's under the law. It's done by legal authorities, even though it was a mistrial or it was a fake trial. Um, he is under the law. It is the authorities who do it. He allows it because he wants to go into our death. He wants to experience our lives and share our suffering and in overcoming it, he makes possible through his body and blood the worldwide blessing. So absolutely to that question, that is what you're seeing Jesus finally bring to realization is that is the worldwide blessing through the sacrifice of the only son. All right, we'll take Ahmed and then uh, and then we'll wrap it up for the night. Hello, doctor. In chapter one and two, you know, like talked about the, uh, you know, like creation and then the climax in, um, at the wedding Cana. Right after that, 
there's like a structure throughout the text that starts with the phrase after this. And there are a lot, there are seven times. I'm not going to go through them all, but um, like in the first one, chapter two, verse 12, and then right after that talks about destroying the temple and the temple like seen as the, the new garden restoration of the new Eden, right? Yes. And as it goes on, there are a lot more, but in chapter seven, verse one, it says after this, then later on in that text, it uh, talks about the living water. And then the sixth time is whenever Jesus says, now it's finished. Being, you know, like the new creation is finished. And then he dies. And then the seventh time he rests on the Sabbath. Yes. And then chapter 20 says on the first day of the week, you know, the resurrection. I don't understand why in chapter 21, it also said after this for the eighth time. No, I don't. I haven't done a study of the after this. So um, certainly you've drawn out something very interesting. I'll have to take a look and we'll, we'll see if maybe there's some people who have written papers on this. I do think it's important to watch these number sevens occurring and these number these numbers that we're pointing out. So in other words, there's an interesting article by Jeffrey Morrow. And I always have, when we're reading Old Testament, I have my students read an article by Jeffrey Morrow, and it's something about uh, temple building or creation, temple building as creation or temple building as microcosm. And you can find it online. If you do a search for Jeff Morrow, uh, temple, temple as microcosm, he goes through an analysis, for instance, of Genesis and how the repetition of the number seven occurs in everything. And so you find this, it's a very priestly way of writing um, the story of creation through these sevens and through these, and through these repetitions. And so John, we know John, who's writing this gospel, we know he's close with the Levites and the priestly tradition. He wouldn't have been able to get in the courtyard of the high priest if he showed an interest in the priestly tradition. Uh, who do we first find him hanging out with but a Levite? And so it doesn't surprise me at all that there are more and more and more of these patterns that you're discussing, that if you read through, you'll find an after this seven times. And then after the resurrection, you'll see an eighth after this. And this is where we're talking about that aspect of when did God, circ when did God say that people should be circumcised? And it was on the eighth day that you're circumcised. And this was pointing to the new covenant uh, a day beyond the regular week of the old creation. And so in that sense, you, you can sign of see in this, in this epilogue, maybe there's a connection with the after this dealing with, what's it dealing with? The resurrected life of Jesus who resurrects on the first day of the week, which means it's kind of a new day beyond time because his resurrected body is not subject to time and space. So I think there might be an interesting aspect to, I haven't studied the after this though, but there's always, there's always people who've written on it. And if you find there isn't, then you need to write on it and you need to draw it out and you need to help because the Holy Spirit's been given to you. The Holy Spirit doesn't belong just to people who can say, I have some letters after my name. You're a confirmed Catholic. You have the sacramental character by which the Holy Spirit, you've agreed to let the Holy Spirit use you to preach to others and sanctify them by sharing the gospel. That's the meaning of your confirmation to fight for the gospel. 
So you should write something. And there's all sorts of places to get what you're writing out there. So I'd really encourage you, if you can't find anything about after this, you need to start putting stuff out there. You've had a lot of great questions through this whole, through this whole series. Thank you. Uh, just another note, whenever you were talking about the circumcision and then the covenant, in chapter 21, actually, when it says that eighth time after this, he's actually meeting with the seven disciples. Uh, so like that seven also like I'm representing the covenant. <laughs> That's very interesting. I know, listen, we're not used to numerology as 21st century Americans, where, but remember, numerology isn't necessarily superstitious. Sometimes numerology is communicating a secondary story. I mean, it's impossible to read St. Augustine without him going into tons of numerology. It's impossible to read the early church fathers without all other numerologies because it was a symbolic way of telling theology. And so we don't want to turn numerology into this, you know, like somehow it's you can manipulate scripture and you can find some Bible code. That's not numerology. But certainly the patterns and the numbers give a secondary story or a story inside the story. Sometimes intended by the author, and sometimes simply the Holy Spirit, who's the primary author, is causing that. Dr. Zakonikas, would you close us in prayer? Sure. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus, we're entering into Holy Week, and you are our true high priest. We ask you, Lord Jesus, our true high priest, because we love you and want to give our lives to you as you gave and laid down your life for us. Jesus, please help us have true contrition for our sins, that we may be freed of these sins and belong more fully to you, you who died to redeem us, who suffered to redeem us. You have every right to demand our love, but you don't demand it. Instead, instead you wait patiently. And Jesus, we want to satisfy your hungering for us, how you thirst for our souls. And so we ask you, Lord Jesus, high priest, please fill us with true repentance and contrition for our sins, to not be afraid of our sins, to make good confessions, to accept and believe in your mercy, and to live in the fullness of your resurrected life, to experience a holy week and the joy of your resurrection. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Uh, my joy has been having the chance to be with all of you. Thank you so much. Dr. Zakonikas, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful series of lectures and given us so much to, to think about and pray about as, as we enter into Holy Week. Very much appreciate it. God bless you, Dr. Zakonikas. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.